say Christian pilgrim, soul redeemed from sin, called out of darkness, a new life to begin. Were you ever in the valley where the way is dark and dim? Did you ever drink the cup of loneliness with him? Did you ever have him laugh at you and say it was a fake? The stand that you so boldly for the Lord did take. Did they ever mock at you and laugh in ways quite grim? Did you ever share the cup of loneliness with him? Did you ever try to preach, then hold fast and pray? And even when you did it, there did not seem a way. And when you lost your courage, then lost all your vim, did you ever drink the cup of loneliness with him? All my friends, tis bittersweet While here on earthly side To follow in the footsteps Where my dear Savior trod To suffer with the Savior And when the way is dim To drink of the bitter cup Of loneliness with Him Everybody, what's going on? It is Luke Marshall here with Things Observed, and we have got a fun episode. I know that I just brought you in with some George Jones. Let the whole song play because the song is so awesome. But now, kick off your cowboy boots, take off your big 10-gallon hat, and we are going to go into the world of the Renaissance. Renaissance Italy. We're going to be spending some time in Florence. So put on one of those Florentine outfits, you know, with like the big puffy arms and some like jester looking pants. If you're a lady, put on a nice Florentine dress that takes you 15 minutes to go to the restroom anytime that you need to go use the restroom so that way you can really get in the headspace for what it is that we're going to be talking about today i got on my computer and it asked me to update my computer and i said remind me tomorrow and tomorrow i'm going to tell it to remind me tomorrow i'm never going to update my computer because it can't i can't be told what to do and then I opened up Audacity to record this podcast, and it brought up the Kinsey file. And guess what? I'm never talking about Kinsey again. 
I'm never thinking about him again because he disgusted me. And we already covered that. So there's no need to ever talk about it again. And we're going to be talking about something today that is uh, a little bit more lighthearted than last episode. There's about 100% less Nazis and child abuse and what have you that we're going to be covering today. So that's nice. A little bit of a breath of fresh air. But we're not really going to be talking about things that are particularly good either. And what we're going to be talking about is the Catholic Church in the Renaissance and the importation, I guess you could say, of certain occult ideas that came into the milieu of some of the Catholic theologians and thinkers and ended up having a bigger influence than maybe we'd think. But first... Let's talk about the Borgia apartments. And I'm pulling out the big guns here. You can tell that I'm an incredible researcher because I'm about to read to you from Wikipedia, the absolute most authoritative source. So that's how you know that I've really done my due diligence and that I'm a dude that you should be listening to because I'm about to read from Wikipedia. But anyhow, this... This is a fine time to read from Wikipedia. Um, You'll get the idea about the Borgia Apartments, and then we'll kind of go from there. The Borgia Apartments are a suite of rooms in the Apostolic Palace in the Vatican, adopted for personal use by Pope Alexander VI. In the late 15th century, he commissioned the Italian painter Bernardino de Beto, sometimes known as Pintoriccio, and his studio to direct decorate them with frescoes. The paintings and frescoes, which were executed between 1492 and 1494, drew on a complex iconographic program that used themes from medieval encyclopedias, adding an eschatological layer of meaning and celebrating the supposedly divine origins of the Borgias. Five of the six apartments include frescoes painted in the vault, The upper register of the vaults contain paintings, while the lower registers are decorated with tapestries and gold. Recent cleaning of Pinturicchio's fresco, The Resurrection, has revealed a scene believed to be the earliest known European depiction of Native Americans, painted just two years after Christopher Columbus returned from the New World. The Borgia apartments include six rooms. Room of the Sibyls. Room of the Creed. Room of the Liberal Arts. Room of the Saints. Room of Mysteries, and Room of Pontiffs. The Room of Sibyls and the Room of Creed include frescoes of the Old Testament prophets and sibyls. These rooms also pay homage to the planets. In the Room of Liberal Arts, Pinturicchio has represented the liberal arts as female figures through his frescoes in the vault. The Room of Saints consists of frescoes detailing the lives of seven notable saints, including Barbara, Catherine, Anthony, Paul, Susanna, and Elizabeth. Pinturicchio's last room, the Room of Mysteries, contains frescoes with New Testament subject matter, including the Nativity, Ascension, Adoration of the Magi, and other scenes. The Room of the Pontus was erected before all the other buildings, between 1277 and 1280. Built between 1447 and 1455, the Room of Liberal Arts Saints and mysteries were referred to as secret rooms by Pope Alexander VI, Master of Ceremonies Johannes Burkhard. 
The Room of Saints portrays episodes from the lives of seven saints in the Bible, along with the largest and finest illustration of the Borgia coat of arms, the bull. The seven saints included our Elizabeth, Anthony, Barbara, Susanna, Sebastian, Paul, and Catherine. Pinturicchio paints notable scenes such as the Visitation, depicting St. Elizabeth and Susanna and the Elders, depicting St. Sebastian. By associating the bull with the lives of the saints, Pope Alexander VI ties his reign to divine blessing. The eight ceiling frescoes narrate the story of Isis, Apis, and Osiris, adding to Pope Alexander VI's interest in Egypt. The ceiling is divided into triangular vaults. The first three vaults showcase Osiris's teachings, succeeded by his marriage to Isis, and finally Typhon's murder of Osiris. The Room of the Saints, one of the secret rooms of the Borgia apartments, may have been used as a private space for the Pope. And so now I am done reading from Wikipedia. But how curious that inside these Vatican apartments where... Um, it says maybe that they had secret meetings in this room, but I think that there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that indeed uh, it was a place where the Pope would bring in important people, often the leaders of other countries or other people of importance, and have it as a place to talk. But how curious that in the room of the saints that you would see figures like Osiris and Isis and Typhon and not only is that curious, but there's even more to be said. This is a quote from Joseph Campbell in his Modern Myths, Modern Worlds. Anyways, I believe that I remembered the name of it correctly, but this is from Joseph Campbell. In the Vatican itself, there is a mural by the master Pinturicchio that shows Isis seated on a Renaissance throne, Renaissance throne instructing Hermes Trismegistus at her right hand and Moses at her left, which surely suggests that the wisdom shared by the pagan and Hebrew sages was originally revealed neither by Yahweh nor by Jove, or Jupiter, um, but by the consort of the dead and resurrected Egyptian savior, savior, Osiris. Okay, so not only is there, you know, Osiris and Isis and Typhon, in these Vatican apartments, the Borgia apartments, but there is also the mythical figure of Hermes Trismegistus. And if you're not familiar with Hermes Trismegistus and Hermeticism, we will do an explanation of that in just a little bit. I said we, I don't know if I got a mouse in my pocket or something. I'll do an explanation of it. I guess we're on this journey together, so I guess that could be the we that I was referring to. But anyhow, we will get to all of that, but needless to say that he is um, kind of a mystical figure that plays prominently in the occult. So why do we have all of these Egyptian gods and all of this occult, this mystical imagery in the Vatican apartments? How would this, and not just in the Vatican apartments, but in the room of the saints nonetheless, and they are instructing Moses? Now, this is all quite peculiar, and it might not make sense, but perhaps after a little while, it will begin to make more sense. So now that you have been titillated with such spicy information, maybe we can go about explaining 
how this came to be. And before I go on to explaining kind of how these occult, occult ideas got brought into the Vatican, um, maybe I should just say that this isn't the only example of uh, this kind of artwork um, being included with Catholic iconography. Um, there could be many other examples brought up. Another one would be the mosaic at the Cathedral of Siena, um, where it shows Hermes Trismegistus as a contemporary of Moses, the two of them chatting it up, you know, as uh, I guess some people believed happened, but which didn't. But anyhow, so how did these occult ideas get brought into the Vatican? How could this ever happen? Well, in 1460, a monk brought a Greek manuscript to Florence, and it contained the alleged writing of Hermes Trismegistus. And the reason that I say alleged writings is these are hermetic writings, but we don't know if Hermes Trismegistus was a real person. I don't tend to think that he was a real person, and even if he were to be a real person, I think it is a lot more doubtful that he would be who he's purported to be in all of these stories. I think that a lot of it can kind of be chalked up to maybe nonsense would be a little bit harsh, but it would be anyways, it'd just be kind of fanciful for that to be the case. But this monk brought in 1460 this Greek manuscript um, with the alleged writings of Hermes Trismegistus, and this monk was sent by Cosimo de' Medici to scour monasteries and libraries in search of ancient text. And these texts would eventually be translated from Greek into Latin by a Catholic priest and a very interesting figure who we will spend the majority of not pretty much the entirety of this episode talking about named Marsilio Ficino. And he would set aside, he was working on translating into Latin the complete works of Plato. And Cosmo, Cosimo de Medici would be so ecstatic. He was so amped on these writings that were purported to be from Hermes Trismegistus that he said, dude, I'm the one who is bankrolling you because that was the case. Um, I'm the one who's bankrolling you, and I need some of this HT, some of this Hermes Trismegistus in my life. And Plato can wait for a second. And they were very excited about this because it was believed at the time, we know through more recent scholarship that they did not have access to then, that the writings that are going to be discussed are not as ancient as they thought it was but I mean they thought that this stuff predated Moses they thought that this was some of the most ancient knowledge and we all know how elites are about mystery school traditions and ancient knowledge the wisdom of the ancients the ancient mages and sages and what have you so they were pretty pumped to have these manuscripts but anyhow, so Ficino would put down translating the works of Plato in order to go about translating these writings from Hermes Trismegistus, and they would have a profound impact on the Latin intelligentsia, intelligentsia of the day, and um, 
Plato would as well because they were getting all of this new Platonic, Neoplatonic literature. He was also translating uh, Plotinus into uh, Latin. You can hear my dog shaking. She's a Cane Corso. Uh, she is an Italian Mastiff, so she gets pretty excited about this type of discussion. She has a lot of input to put in. She's the one who actually handed me all these notes because she's really a scholar when it comes to this thing because, you know, she extensively reads from Wikipedia. But, um, so the Neoplatonic school of thought would be revived because of, um, Ficino translating all of this stuff into Latin as well as an intense interest in hermeticism among people like Cosimo de' Medici and a lot of the other intelligentsia, you know, because like only five dudes could freaking read back then. But I guess before we go too much further into the topic at hand, it would be helpful if we talk just a little bit about who this mythological figure of Hermes Trismegistus is. So that way, if people who aren't aware, which I'm sure a lot of you are aware, but people who aren't aware can be brought up to speed. So I'm not talking over anybody's head because I'm a dumb guy. And what fun is it to have a dumb guy talk over your head? It's not fun at all. So anyways, who was Hermes Trismegistus? Well, he was often called the thrice greatest. That's what Trismegistus means. And he's a mythological figure. And he was rumored to have been the greatest of all philosophers, of all kings, and of all priests. And now, whether he was even a real dude, much less um, a king and a priest, I guess if he was a real dude, he would have been a philosopher, but um, it's all up for debate. Um, but anyhow, that's why he's thrice greatest. He's the greatest king, greatest philosopher, uh, greatest priest. And he um, is typically thought of to be a combination of the Greek god Hermes and Hermes would become Mercury under the Latins, and the Egyptian god Thoth, um, Thoth, however it is pronounced. Once again, I'm a stupid guy. But anyhow, this figure likely arose out of Hellenistic Egypt, so when Egypt was occupied by the Greek by the Greeks, and these ideas would come from a syncretic mixture of Egyptian, Greek, and even some Jewish ideas. And Hermes uh, the Greek god, he was the guide of souls in the afterlife. He was the messenger of the gods. He was associated with commerce and all kinds of other things. But that's basically all we need to know about him. And Thoth was the baboon-headed Egyptian god of wisdom, magic, science, art, hieroglyphs, the moon. You know, he was a busy guy, according to the Egyptians. And uh, so Hermes Trismegistus was regarded by the ancient Egyptians as the embodiment of the divine mind and was said to reveal to mankind the arts, the sciences, magic, music, astrology, math, especially geometry, medicine, chemistry, rhetoric, anatomy, law, and philosophy. He was also another very busy guy. And so some people thought throughout history um, that he was the biblical Enoch, and, uh, you know, we don't have all the time in the world, but, you know, Enoch is kind of a mysterious figure in Genesis, in the, uh, Bible, in the Torah, and, uh, you know, he is, I think him and Elijah, if I remember correct, they're kind of like the only Old Testament dudes who just get brought up into the heavens, they, um, but anyways, 
there's also the book of Enoch, which is kind of like an apocryphal text that is not included in any uh, biblical canons that I'm aware of, except I think like it doesn't even matter. But anyhow, so some people associated this Hermes Trismegistus figure with the biblical Enoch. And it is this figure who is believed by many occultists to have started a mystery school tradition where adepts would be guided in how to ascend through the constraints of physical being and unite with the one, the divine mind. The one is in all and is all. You know, this is kind of the hermetic conception of God. And so the there was most likely some sort of cult back in the day, um, religious group, um, where people would be initiated into the hermetic mysteries and they would be taught how to kind of go past the, uh, the physical and ascend, the spirit ascend to unite with the one. And there are some kind of corollaries that can be drawn with Gnosticism, and perhaps we'll get a little bit into that. There are some things that are similar, but there's also some differences. But anyways, so there was most likely this mystery school tradition, and um, there are people like Manly P. Hall, who is a, man, my dog is going crazy. She just can't get enough of this. Um, there are people like Manly P. Hall, the honorary 33rd degree Freemason. Um, he wrote The Secret Teachings of All Ages, um, The Secret Destiny of America, and he was this scholar of masonry, of the Rosicrucians, of the Knights Templar, of all these different mystery school traditions and just kind of religious I'm going to pause for a second. The dog is going nuts. All right, I took her collar off, so hopefully you can't hear so much jingling and jangling in the background. And we can go about focusing on this important issue at hand. But anyways, um, yeah, so Manly P. Hall, the honorary 33rd degree Freemason, claimed that uh, it was Hermes Trismegistus who was the author of many of these mystery school traditions. And so that is certainly a very interesting claim. And uh, so this one, the divine mind is like an emanation of the cosmos. And the cosmos is eternal and filled with all, other, all kinds of other intelligences. So, you know, gods, demons, um, what have you. And life and the mind are eternal and death is only physical dissolution and so some of you might be able to see some of the overlap that it has with kind of the Gnostic school of thought, but Hermeticism isn't quiet as uh, against material reality as the Gnostics. It gets complicated, and this isn't a podcast about philosophy per se, but I wanted to give a brief description of Hermeticism and Hermes Trismegistus so that way we can go about having a productive conversation about all of this. So all the writings that were supposedly authored by Hermes are referred to as the Hermetica, and they have been divided by modern scholars into two schools, the technical and the philosophical, which these are really just kind of arbitrary, and it's people with a modern way of thinking kind of 
dividing things into these two categories, but by the ancients, there wouldn't have been seen this divide between what is, you know, philosophical versus what is alchemical versus all of that. I mean, so um, that's a little bit arbitrary, but Ficino translated 14 different tractates from the Hermetica, and this was known as the Corpus Hermeticum. And it's most of the tractates are structured as a dialogue between Hermes Trismegistus and his students, his initiates into his mystery school tradition. And one of these tractates is actually a conversation between um, the divine mind and Hermes himself, and it's known as the Poimandries. And Hermes will behold this great dragon while he's chilling in a cave, because, you know, that's how you receive crazy mystical revelation, is you just go chill in a cave. cave. Um, no one can say whether hashish was involved. I'm just joking around, but also, who knows? Hermes kind of seems like a bit of a space cadet, so I wouldn't put it past the dude. But he was hanging out in a cave. He sees this big dragon. The dragon tells him it is the divine mind of the universe, and when you're chilling in a cave and a dragon approaches you, obviously you trust the dragon at face value. And that's what he did. And so he would write about this encounter. Um, someone would write about this encounter. And so now back to Ficino. Um, a little bit of background about Marsilio Ficino is that he was born on October 19th, 1433 in Florence. His father was a doctor under the patronage of Cosimo de' Medici, and Cosimo would accept Ficino in his house and, you know, say, come hang out at my house anytime you want. You're a cool dude, and also I'll be your lifelong patron, and will you tutor my grandson, Lorenzo? Um, so the patriarch of the Medici's, uh, Cosimo, kind of brings Ficino into the fold, and so now, um, Ficino was born in 1433, and that also just happens to be the year that the Council of Florence was taking place. And so what the Council of Florence was, is it was a council that was trying to rectify the East-West schism that existed in the Christian church at the time, because there was the East-West schism, which happened over a variety of different reasons, and we're not going to go into the theology and all the different, you know, political reasons and everything that went into that because we just don't have the time and I don't have the energy and I'm not smart enough. Maybe go read a book if you want to learn about that. That sounded condescending. I didn't mean that. I love you guys. But anyhow, so it was trying to rectify this East-West schism the Council of Florence was, and this would go on from 1433 all the way up to 1445. And the Council of Florence um, would, um, there was this guy who spoke before the council, and this guy was Jamistos Plethon. And Plethon would really woo Cosimo de Medici with all the things that he was saying and what kind of things was he saying well he was advocating a return to the worship of the hellenistic gods and was incredibly enmeshed enmeshed in the philosophy of plato and the neoplatonist like plotinus and some others 
and he was also a big fan of Zoroastrianism. And so Plethon's idea was kind of, hey, the way that we heal the East-West schism is let's just abandon Christianity and go back to the pagan gods. And so uh, I don't know what exactly about this was so interesting to Cosimo de' Medici. Probably it just had to do with his interest in Platonism at the time. And so um, he's impressed with all this Plato talk of all these, you know, Hellenistic figures. And here is a quote that comes from uh, George of Trebizond. And uh, he was there at the council, and he's just kind of talking about um, what Plethon was, was saying there. And he said, I myself heard him at Florence, asserting that in a few more years the whole world would accept one and the same religion with one mind, one intelligence, one teaching. And when I asked him, Christ or Muhammad, he said, neither, but it will not differ much from paganism. I was so shocked by these words that I hated him ever after and fared him like a poisonous viper, and I could no longer bear to see him or bear him. I heard, too, from a number of Greeks who escaped here from the Peloponnese that he openly said before he died that not many years after his death, Muhammad and Christ would collapse, and the true truth would shine through every region of the globe. And so... Um, it's very interesting that uh, Plethon, you know, kind of comes in front of the council and he just, you know, basically says that uh, we need to abandon Christianity. That's the way to heal the East-West schism. And Plethon had uh, plenty of other interesting things to say. And, you know, before you think that, you know, these were just a bunch of crazy Christians and that, you know, Plethon was kind of like this cool guy advocating for paganism in front of there. I doubt that many of the listeners probably think that because uh, I don't think that there's probably a whole lot of people listening who are fans of the occult. But um, even with all the excesses of the Catholic Church, um, you know, you couldn't really say that George of Trebizond had a... Uh, better alternative and i uh can't find exactly it but um there's some things that he said that basically kind of insinuate that you know he uh would mete out the same kind of punishment on uh christians in his ideal world that the you know christians would sometimes unfortunately enact on, you know, pagans or people perceived to be pagans in prior times. So anyways, um, Plethon also was said to have established a secret society known as the Fratria, and this was named after a Hellenistic hereditary brotherhood of antiquity. And the, uh, you know, society of antiquity would hold this festival of Fratria for three days every year, making sacrifices to the Greek gods, mostly animal, but it has been alleged that uh, sometimes the sacrifices were human. And as we've already stated, Plethon was an outright pagan, and he viewed returning to paganism as the way of solving the schism. And this talk of, you know, Plethon um, 
he said something, we don't know exactly what, but he said something that really caused Cosimo to uh, be a fan and to be intrigued, and it would cause him to actually establish the Platonic Academy of Florence, and he would choose none other than Marsilio Ficino as its head. And so now we're going to, once again, jump forward a little bit more in time. At the time of, oh, never mind, my mistake. I was just going to read you a quote now from Ficino, where um, he's just kind of reiterating some of the stuff that I've already talked about in his own words. At the time when the council was in progress between the Greeks and the Latins in Florence under Pope Eugenius, the great Cosimo, whom a who a decree of the Senate designated Pater Patrice often listened to the Greek philosopher Gemistos while he expounded the mysteries of Platonism, and he was so immediately inspired, so moved by Gemistos's fervent tongue, that as a result he conceived in his noble mind a kind of academy which he was to bring to birth at the first opportune moment. Later, when the great Medici brought his great idea into being, he destined me, the son of his favorite doctor, while I was still a boy for the great task. And so, you know, Cosimo de' Medici is going to recreate the Platonic school, and there's all this interest in Platonism and Neoplatonism now in Renaissance Rome. Get off stage, Cash. Okay. Down a dangerous road I have come to where I'm standing With a heavy heart And my hat clutched in my hand Such a foolish man God ain't known no greater sinner I have come in search of Jesus Hoping he will understand If I give my soul Will he clean these clothes I'm wearing? If I give my soul, will he put new boots on my feet? If I bow my head and beg God for his forgiveness, will he breathe new life within me and bring her back to me? I had a woman once. She was kind and she was gentle had a child by me who grew up to be a man I had a steady job till I started into drinking then I started making music traveling with the devil's band oh the years went by like a mighty rush of eagles our dreams and plans we're all scattered in the wind And it's a lonesome life When you lose the ones you live for If I make my peace with Jesus Will they take me back again? If I give my soul Will he stop my hands from shaking? If I give my soul Will my son love me again? If I give my soul And she knows I really mean it If I give my soul to Jesus 
will she take me back again? If I give my soul, will he clean these clothes I'm wearing? If I give my soul, will he put new boots on my feet? If I bow my head and beg God for his forgiveness, will he breathe new breath within me and bring her back to me? Ficino was extremely interested in astrology and magic. And keep in mind, he was a Catholic priest, and he believed that Catholic theology relied too heavily on Aristotle, and he was preferential to the ideas of Plato. And certainly the Catholics do use a lot of Aristotelian ideas in their thinking. Um, you know, people like Augustine... Um, who was very influential on the Catholic Church. He was more influenced by Plato, but um, certainly Thomas Aquinas is a big Aristotle head, and a lot of Aristotelian thinking and logic would make its way into Catholic theology. And this was not as interesting to Ficino as the ideas of Plato. And so Ficino moved away from the ideas of Catholicism being in direct opposition to other religions. And he is what you could kind of call one of the first syncretists or a proto-syncretist, you know. So before Aldous Huxley and Alan Watts and, you know, the New Age people, guys who, you know, smoke weed and go, man, all religions are just trying to tell you the same thing, man. You had Ficino. So Ficino was, you know, not opposed to looking at other religious traditions and mystical and magical traditions and trying to find what he called the Prisca Theologia. And uh, once again, since I'm such a big brain, I'm going to read from Wikipedia what it describes as the Prisca Theologia or the ancient theology like the first theology. And it says that the Prisca Theologia is the doctrine that asserts that a single true theology exists, which threads through all religions, and which was anciently given by God to man. Ficino, so anyways, that's how Wikipedia describes it. And Ficino believed that theology began with Zoroaster, the Iranian prophet, and that it would move on to Hermes Trismegistus, and then to Orpheus, and then Pythagoras, Pythagoras, and then Plato, and that all of these, you know, Zoroastrian and pagan thinkers back of the day, they what they're talking about prefigures Christ, and if you look in between the lines, you can see Christ there in Christianity, and that, you know, all of these religions have something to offer and they're all hinting at the same thing and it's kind of this idea that you know uh what the religions have to say that's all kind of just window dressing a lot of it and what you're really looking for is those nuggets of wisdom which you know are the same throughout all these different religions so certainly a very uh controversial idea at the time but this is kind of where Ficino's head was at and Ficino would go so far as to wonder if Moses was Hermes Trismegistus um, but I think that he actually probably thought that 
uh, HT long, not long, but came before Moses and that perhaps Moses was, you know, brought into some of this same mystery school tradition that um, Hermes Trismegistus was a part of and that he got that secret wisdom that was there. And uh, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the Cathedral of Siena, the fresco of Moses and Hermes Trismegistus being contemporaries with one another. But we know that that probably isn't true anymore because most scholars think that the text of the Hermetica, not just the Corpus Hermeticum, which Ficino translated, but we now have a lot more Hermetic text than that. Um, and they kind of believe that the oldest stuff was from the, you know, maybe 4th BC, leading up all the way to 4th AD. Um, you know, so there's a big range of time in between there, but that's kind of when people think that, you know, Hermeticism was uh, kind of being developed and was, you know, maybe an active tradition. But anyways, um, so what kind of magic was Ficino into? What kind of things did, you know, think Pico think of in regards to magic? Well, Pico, one of these ideas that he, you know, took from some Neoplatonic and some pagan sources is this idea of a world soul, that the world has a soul and that we're all kind of affected by this world soul and that the planets have kind of like their own spheres and that these planetary spheres have an effect on the world soul and, um... So, you know, the planets have these celestial souls and that they had an effect on the world soul. And he would actually make talisman to try and harness energy from the planets. And he would try to do all these things to, you know, maybe ward off the negative effects of Saturn. Um, you know, he was not a fan of Saturn, thought Saturn had a lot of negative stuff going on. But, you know, maybe he would harness with his talisman the energies of Jupiter or what have you and he also would get into imbuing statues with cosmic energies or even spirits um, so kind of like this theurgy um, that he was interested into and it's interesting to note that you know this obviously goes against Catholic teaching um, all of this kind of magical practice and all these different things that he was doing were pretty much explicitly written about by Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas saying, don't do this, it's bad. But uh, that's not how Ficino looked at it. And so how did Ficino, you know, kind of square off his magical practices with his Catholicism? Well, that's complicated. And it's complicated for a multitude of reasons because sometimes you can actually kind of wonder the authenticity of Ficino's Catholicism or whether he's using his Catholicism kind of as a vehicle to import these other ideas. And, you know, I would probably argue that he's much more interested in this Prisca Theologia, the ancient theology um, that he kind of thinks undergirds all the different religions 
And, uh, but he made a distinction between kind of dirty magic, what we'd maybe call today black magic, and what he called magica naturalis, or natural magic. And natural magic is not magic where you're trying to invoke entities, you know, bring entities into yourself or summon entities before you. Because um, that would be the work of the demons, according to Ficino. But he's more interested in harnessing, you know, the energy of the planets and of the world soul. And so he kind of has all these different ideas going on that run very counter to what most Catholics believe. But it was actually an idea which, maybe surprisingly, maybe not too surprisingly, depending on the way you think, um, was very interesting to many in uh, the intelligentsia of the time, not just the Medicis, but later these ideas would uh, kind of, between different popes, you know, there would be some who uh, seemed to not be in agreement with it and would even, you know, declare uh, Ficino to be a bit of a heretic, but then there was also others who didn't really seem to have a problem. And some, like, I believe it was Pope Alexander VI, who would actually be very interested by these ideas and the ideas of Ficino's student, who we will get to uh, probably in the next episode. I'll probably just do this episode on Ficino alone because it's almost getting the length of an entire episode. But uh, Ficino's student, uh, Pico Dea Mirandola, um, so we'll probably give him and some other guys a treatment because I want to do a series on the Catholic Church because I think it's very interesting. It's what I've been getting interested into at the moment, and it's a subject that I want to familiarize myself with more and learn about. So anyways, yeah, there's the world soul, there's the planetary spheres, there's the celestial spheres, there's natural magic in his mind. Um, he believes in talismanic magic, using talisman, and uh, kind of like theurgical practices of imbuing statues with cosmic energies, or maybe even with, you know, entities to make them living statues, or what have you. So, some kind of far out stuff, especially when you're talking from a, you know, renaissance catholic mindset i mean this is kind of like the transition period from you know medieval catholicism into renaissance catholicism and ficino's ideas and especially his translations of the work of plato and the neoplatonists and the hermeticum the corpus hermeticum would have a huge reverberation through the intelligentsia it would be very influential and he's a very important figure and that's kind of how you get stuff like the borgia apartments that we discussed at the beginning of the episode where you have you know people like moses who are being depicted being handed down information from hermes trismegistus and isis and so all quite interesting stuff but um so Lorenzo de' Medici, who was Cosimo de' Medici's grandson, he would recommend that Ficino be made the Bishop of Cortona, which is very interesting. So that kind of goes to show you um, just how 
well-connected Ficino was because the Medici's weren't just anyone. They were the kingmakers of Florence. They were the banking and political dynasty that would have um, pretty much complete control over what was going on inside of Florence. And so he was, uh, Ficino was well-connected to say the least. And these ideas were very interesting to the Medici's. And it's also interesting to take note that just kind of the same way that elites now are a lot of the times interested in the occult and magic that it was the same of the elites back then. And I think that there are uh, many different reasons for that, but probably one of the biggest is just with all these occult ideas, there's kind of the, you know, this is for the initiated. This isn't for, you know, just any Joe off the street. This is for people who have been inducted into the mysteries and you know, so there's kind of a certain elitism to it, which is certainly going to be very attractive to people like the Medici's, especially when, you know, they're some of the only people who are going to have access to the, you know, translations by Ficino and Ficino's own works. Because Ficino would write himself, but yeah, so Ficino had kind of a weird way of reconciling, you know, his magical beliefs, his beliefs in Hermeticism with Christianity. And I think that you could kind of say that, you know, one moment he would be writing as a Christian, but then the next moment he would be writing as, you know, kind of a hermeticist. And, you know, then the next moment he's writing as a Platonist, and he kind of seems to just weave somehow through all these different positions and doesn't see any conflict in them. And I think a lot of it is because he is a syncretist. He is somebody who's looking for the Prisca Theologia, who believes that there is, you know, kind of the seed of truth in all these different religions. And I think that he has ultimately the same goal of Jamistos Plethon, who we talked about earlier, but he's going about it in a different way. He doesn't view the way to get to the one world religion as to... Um, you know, dissolve Christianity and necessarily return back to the pagan gods. He's, I guess, trying to go about it in a little bit more sophisticated route. Um, Ficino's almost kind of like proto-New Age, and he had other ideas that would become very um, New Age in the future. I mean, you think of the secret, you know, the idea that your thoughts have an impact on matter and the material realm that is something that's right out of the Ficino playbook that's something that he believed in strongly or this idea that's you know kind of came back the idea of a world soul like Gaia or something like that that was something that Ficino was very interested in and he had all kinds of other ways of trying to rationalize his magic with his Christianity he would cite how ancient Egyptian and Chaldean and Persian priest would practice medicine and at the time you know they thought that medicine can't really be separated from astrology and you know he believed that the planets had an impact on people because it had an impact on the world soul which we're all kind of connected to and so you can't separate you know this kind of magical and astrological outlook from you know medicine and all the you know 
people who used to be medicine doctors were, you know, priests and stuff like that. And he would say things that, like, Christ is a healer, you know. So, like, how do you think you did that, man? Um, he'd also just say some other interesting things. He'd, like, claim that the Magis who followed the star to Bethlehem, that they used Zoroastrian astrology. As we stated, you know, he thought that Moses was kind of, like, initiated into these mystery school religions, which is something that you'll even see in later people, like, you know, Manly P. Hall's, like, writing similar stuff in the secret teachings of all ages, and it would become you know, something that is of interest to other occultists. And, you know, Manly P. Hall basically says that a lot of the Freemasonic initiation rites are pretty much completely lifted from hermetic initiation rites and magic and what have you. And so in 1489, Ficino was accused of heresy, but he would be cleared by Pope Innocent VIII of heresy. So he kind of had a bit of a scare, but Despite that, don't let that make you think that these ideas weren't very influential in Rome at the time. I mean, as we've seen in the beginning of the episode, um, you know, we have in the Vatican itself, you know, commissioned by, a, I believe that it was Pope Alexander VI, um, these frescoes of Moses and Hermes Trismegistus and Osiris and Typhon and Isis. And so that will probably just about conclude the episode. It's a lot shorter than the last episode that I did on Kinsey. Um, if that's something that you might be interested, go check that out. It was a fun time doing the episode on Kinsey. It's a good two-hour podcast with a lot of stuff in it. If you want to learn about how Kinsey is related to MK Ultra experiments, possibly, learn about his connections to nazis and to pedophilia and his intense interest on getting the diaries of alistair crowley and if you enjoyed this episode i hope that you will like it or give it a good rating on whatever podcast app that you are using to listen to it i would really appreciate that so hopefully this can get in front of some more people if you like it you can also follow me I'm on Twitter at Things Observed, and I'm going to be posting a thread about this podcast. So if you haven't seen that, I'll have a thread out there, and I'll put some pictures um, of you know these paintings by Pintoriccio and um, some of this other stuff that I talked about. And um, you can also just follow me. I've been posting recently about all kinds of different stuff, so there should be some interesting things there. And also follow if you want to continue to hear about this, because I plan on making this a series. I've got some more notes. I probably could talk a little bit longer, but I think that this has been a good length for an episode. So um, we'll say stuff about Pico de la Mirandola uh, and Johannes Reuchlin and some other people who will be involved with Catholicism and the occult. And we'll get into the next episode about kind of uh, the Catholic Church and the creation of Christian Kabbalah and, uh, you know, kind of the import of some Jewish mysticism and occult ideas into the Catholic Church. And I guess the last thing that I'll end off saying this is I think that this is um, not only interesting because it kind of gives a, a bit of background to the history of 
religious syncretism. But I also think that at this story that we're talking about and that we're going to talk about in the next episode or two, it also kind of gives you, um, takes you back kind of to the root of where some of the Catholic ecumenism would come out of, you know, uh, this idea of kind of, you know, dissolving the boundaries between denominations and different religions. And also, not to get too conspiracy-pilled about it, but, you know, you hear about a new world order, you hear about a one-world religion, and this is kind of how some of those types of ideas get brought into the Vatican and into Catholicism during this Renaissance time period. And also, all this stuff would have a huge impact on Renaissance humanism. And, you know, a lot of people don't think about we think of the renaissance and we kind of think about the rejection of the superstitions and you know kind of the birth of reason and rationality but we forget to take into account the occult roots of the renaissance and the enlightenment sometimes so there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff there but yeah this is also very interesting because it's kind of where you begin to get some of this one world religion talk starting to get going in the Catholic Church. And as we'll see over time, this will continue to just, these ideas will continue to be brought into the Catholic Church. And I think that it's probably responsible for a lot of the changes that you see. And there's kind of a tendency among a lot of Catholics to, you know, think that everything got bad, you know, right at Vatican II or something like that, and that that's the root of ecumenism and um, the problems with Rome. But, you know, as we can see, it goes back a lot further than that. And just to clarify, I am not Catholic. I do consider myself a Christian. Um, you know, I'm not a Protestant either. I'm a, a catechumen in the Orthodox Church, you know. So I'm not even a member, but, uh, you know, I'm by no means an expert on all of this stuff, but just wanted to put that out there so people can kind of know where I'm coming from and my own biases and what have you. And, you know, I had theological differences with Catholicism even prior to the Renaissance period. You know, I mean, there was the schism for a reason over, you know, Philip theological ideas like the filioque way and what have you but anyways you know that's where i'm coming from with all this but i think that this information is stuff that would be of value to catholics and to non-catholics alike but anyways yes we will continue to learn all about the catholic church and i might just turn this whole series not into only talking about kind of the occult infiltration of the catholic church but maybe we'll talk about the catholic church and Nazis all the way down to current day stuff like the Catholic Church and the Great Reset. I think that that could be fun. Anyways, it's a subject that I've been getting interested in recently. But anyways, I feel like I'm rambling at this point. Hopefully you guys all enjoyed the show and let's take you out with some groovy tunes. Later fellas and ladies. Filled with sin I wouldn't let my dear Savior in Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night Praise the Lord
Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Just like a blind man, I wondered along worries and fears I claimed for my own. Then like the blind man, the God gave back his sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I was a fool to wonder and stray For straight is the gate and narrows now I have traded the wrong for the right. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light.